As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Earlier this week, I had a photo memory pop up on my Facebook. It was a photo of teenage me in my pop-punk shirt and awful haircut, standing in front of my very first car on the day I bought it. And I remember that day really well. I remember the owner with his big bushy Steven Seagal goatee, bleach-stained singlet, and the fact that our entire interaction, I don't think I ever saw him without a cigarette in his hand. I drove to his house, gave it a quick look over, saw it had a great stereo, and shook his hand. We signed the papers right there and then, and I then held my first set of keys. It was at that point that the seller asked me if I'd like some advice on the car. Of course, he doesn't like advice. First, he pointed to the boot, or trunk for Americans, and said, the boot doesn't latch shut, and if you stop too fast, it'll fly open. thought to myself, well, I've signed the papers, and it's not too bad. And look, I'll just drive carefully. It's no problem. And then he told me, well, the brake lights also don't work unless you use this piece of metal as a fuse. Otherwise, it keeps blowing fuses. Well, that's definitely not great. But I was young and dumb, and I'd already signed the papers. So I thought, meh, it's still my car. I'll just pay to get this all fixed. So the next day, I took my car down to the mechanic and asked him to price up everything. And was given a figure that, as a teenager working in the kitchen of a coffee shop, I couldn't even begin to entertain. So I just lived with that car as is for a few years. The metal stayed in as the fuse, and the boot opening and closing at every stoplight just became a part of my life. It was my car, but due to my financial situation, there was very little I could actually do to change the state I got it in. Keeping that story in mind, I want you to now imagine yourself as the transport minister for Mozambique, a huge nation on the southeast coast of Africa, a nation who, as we speak, is currently fighting an enveloping civil war in its north against its Muslim-majority province, of Kabul Delgado. You sit down at the big desk in your boardroom, surrounded by advisors, and ask what you can do as the Minister of Transport to help the war in the north. The advisor to your left says, well, the main complaint is that they don't respect the government in Maputo, because it's 2,000 kilometers south of where they are. But you're a good transport minister, and you want to do your part. So you suggest, well, let's just run more trains up there, so these people can come experience the capital for themselves. Your advisor looks at you and then tells you, we don't have any train lines running north to south. All of our train lines were built by the Portuguese and the British, and they only run from east to west, from the mines to the ports. You then turn to the advisor on your right. Well, why can't they just drive here? There are plenty of jobs in the capital waiting for them. Your advisor then shakes his head and says, it's 2,000 kilometers away. It's a four-day journey. The Portuguese put the capital this far south because it was more convenient for sailors coming around the Cape of Good Hope. As a minister, you can immediately see that this disconnection between the North and the South is a huge problem, and it's a problem that you inherited when you took over the country. You see, much like my car, yes, it was my car, but with a combination of how the previous owners ran and drove it, and my lack of funds meant that I had to continue with a number of these obviously detrimental flaws in my car, even though that wasn't my decision to do so. 
and for Mozambique, these decisions compounded. Maputo's disconnection from the north of the country is now manifesting in a stark north-south divide, fueling a civil war that continues to scare away international investors, making you poorer and making it harder to solve the problem again. And to take us through how we got to this position, how in just the space of a few years, Mozambique went from one of the top five fastest growing economies in the world to potentially splintering into another disastrous civil war. It's a complicated situation. And to take us through that, we turn to our first guest. Part One, A Legacy, written by Lisbon. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Mozambique is a southeastern African country with a long course of more than uh, 2,000 kilometers. Uh, it's a poor country, a uh, Portuguese-speaking country. Uh, population is around 30 million uh, as per now. Uh, majority Christian, uh, but with high representative of Muslim. So majority of Mozambicans are living in a rural area, so more than uh, 70% now. Uh, politically, it has been under rule of uh, uh, Frelimo since the independence uh, from Portugal in 1975. Borges Niamire is a research consultant and expert at the Institute for Security Studies, specializing in African affairs. He's also a top-notch journalist based out of Maputo, focusing on Mozambican politics for the last 15 years. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. I think civil war is long in the past. Uh, what happens is that the civil war is still active in the politics. So a government will always blame the civil war for not performing well in terms of infrastructure, for example. Uh, Mozambique is a country, as I've said, is a long country, more than 2.5 thousand kilometers from Aputu to Cabo Delgado, for example. But we have no uh, single highway. Uh, to connect the country, we have no railway to connect the country. So government will always blame uh, civil war because of that. Uh, of course, in the memory of people who have lost their beloved ones, we still have it. But in practice, in daily uh, life, I don't think the uh, underdevelopment of uh, this country has to do with the civil war. The answer may be obvious to some, but I want to talk about who Mozambique has very close relationships with. See, Mozambique is officially a Lucifer nation, which means they speak Portuguese. But they have very little ties with other Lucifer nations like Brazil, Angola, or Timor-Leste. In fact, they usually work with English-speaking nations like South Africa, Zambia, and India. Mozambique has even gone on to join the Commonwealth, despite not being a British colony. Can you take us through why they would identify in this English sphere of Africa, rather than coalesce with the other Portuguese-speaking parts of Africa? 
It has to do with history. Uh, you know, this uh, Berlin conference, the, the European powers, they decided to divide Africa among themselves. So it happened that Portugal has been given Mozambique and Angola here in Southern Africa, the country where Portugal was already colonizing at that time. But you know that Portugal was find, fighting at that time uh, to rule, to make Mozambique and, and Angola the same country, linking the two countries, including part of South Africa. But happened that Portugal was given uh, Mozambique, and that was not easy. It was a, a long fight. For example, uh, one of the statesmen who decided that was Mark Mahon, General Mark Mahon, is a French uh, man who decided he helped to draw the borders between Mozambique and South Africa. Uh, but also at that time, uh, uh, Portugal was uh, allied to uh, England, so that helped to shape the borders here. And so you can see that the corridors that exist in Mozambique, uh, linking to the uh, ports, seaports, for Maputo, Beira, and Nakala, of them, all of them uh, lead to uh, interland countries, which were part of the British Empire. So this has a lot to do with history. Mozambique is a pretty huge country. In fact, from the capital Maputo to the northern border is the same distance from Paris in France to Kiev in Ukraine. And if you don't have a map in front of you, the country is kind of a giant tall rectangle. It's roughly about six times as tall running north-south as it is wide going east-west, with it opening up to a bit of a Y at the top. Interestingly though, the British and Portuguese never built railroads and transport infrastructure running up and down the country, even though that's six times as long. Instead, they only built train lines and roads that run from the port cities on the east coast to the British and Portuguese mines and resource hubs inland in the west of the country or into the British colonies in Zimbabwe, Zambia or Malawi. When reading some of the literature about this particular subject, it's often talked about that this is one of the main reasons that there is such a lack of cohesion between the north and south of Mozambique that people and businesses don't tend to move around inside Mozambique, as the transport networks just aren't there to do it easily. Do you think this is an accurate assessment and this lack of transportation connectivity between the north and the south of the country has made a large impact on where we see the country today? Yes, because Portugal, which was the colonial power, was the colonizer of Mozambique, was a poor country at that time. So the railway system in Mozambique port and railway system in Mozambique uh, were built by British uh, to serve British interests. So if we look to the Maputo uh, port and its railway to South Africa, it was built to uh, serve to the to South Africa. Uh, if we go to Beira port and its uh, railway, which make the Beira corridor, it was built to uh, serve Zimbabwe, Malawi and Zambia, uh, which were part of a British Empire as well as the Nakala port. So uh, in summary, all the railway network was not built to serve the country, uh, Mozambique, but it was built to serve the uh, neighboring countries, which were part of the British Empire. The political geography of Mozambique is also quite odd. And as we said before, the country is the size of Paris to Kiev. But instead of the capital being anywhere in the middle, Maputo is almost as far south as it can go. For perspective, if you're standing in Maputo, you can hop in a car and you can be in South Africa within 90 minutes. But to get to Pemba, the largest city in the north and just south of the border with Tanzania, even the direct journey will take two to four days. And that's if the weather's good and nothing goes wrong. 
So after that long journey, when you do get to Cabo Delgado, the northernmost province we'll be talking about a lot today, the people are very different to those you meet in the south. And in many cases, they never even met someone from Maputo. So with all the laws and rules of the country being written in Maputo, yet many citizens having never even been there, how does this central rule of law hold up in Cabo Delgado? Do the people in the north respect the rule and authority of the central government? I, I think this is one of the biggest problems that we are facing now. Uh, that most American government doesn't want to assume, but I think this is a big problem. In fact, Maputo is located in the south, southern part of the country. Uh, so to exercise the power in Cabo Delgado, for example, in Tet, uh, in Zambia, it is very difficult. People, the political elite in Maputo, they don't feel it. And another problem is that Maputo is the whole capital of everything. So economic uh, capital, uh, parliament capital, so legislative power. The cabinet is here, the, pres- the office of president is also here in Maputo. So that is a big problem and how effective the government from Maputo can look over the country. The presence of the state in all the province of Mozambique is very low. Uh, so what I mean, Mozambique is a large country with uh, 11 provinces and more than 150 districts. So you will see that the, uh, the state institution not present uh, at all in all the districts. I mean, the courts, police, and its different units, like a crime, crime investigation police, is not present in all the districts. So when you go to the local community, villages, you will see that the state is not there. So if we are talking about Pemba, if we arrive in Pemba, we'll feel the presence of government, uh, police, uh, courts, public prosecutor, uh, intelligence service. But if you go to a village where people really live, uh, the state is not there. So the presence of government and its representative is very low. In general, the state presence in, in, in the territory is very low. For example, our borders are very porous border not controlled, not patrolled, because this government is not there. We could uh, briefly talk about the maritime uh, border in Mozambique, which is just uh, open. Uh, government has no uh, capacity to, con- to take control of it because the country is very large. So to stress the divisions here, the main language of government is Portuguese, and the majority of the country is Christian. But in Cabo Delgado, the northernmost province, the main languages are usually Arabic or Swahili-based and the majority of people in this province are of the Muslim faith. In the last five years, there has been a war going on with breakaway groups in Cabo Delgado fighting against the central government. We'll be going through this a lot more further on in the episode. The government has been trying to reassert itself over the breakaway areas, but they often lack coordination, to put it mildly. For example, the intel officers and policemen sent up from Maputo to gather information on the rebels from Cabo Delgado only spoke Portuguese. So they had no way of communicating with the rebels who were all speaking Swahili dialects. How does this happen? Why was there this lack of coordination coming out of Maputo for this one? Uh, the state service, all of them, they use Portuguese. The courts, the police, the intelligence service, uh, and local people, they don't speak Portuguese as the first language. And Mozambique has more than 40 different local languages uh, from Maputo to Cabo Delgado. So local people, they just speak their local language, which uh, police and intelligence officers, the military, they don't understand that language. So that is a big barrier. Just to have an idea, if someone is being tried in a court, someone must be there to do the translation from their local language to uh, Portuguese. The level of uh, illiteracy in Mozambique, meaning people who cannot read and write in, 
in, in Portuguese. There was more than 90% when Mozambique became independent, and now is roughly about 50%. So that is the context. So it has contributed a lot uh, for the intelligence service to uh, miss uh, what is happening on the ground. A few years ago, the country seemed like it was about to hit a great financial windfall when it discovered large deposits of natural gas in the north of the country in Cabo Delgado. The gas infrastructure is being set up by the French company Total, who we've spoken about quite a lot when it comes to African energy infrastructure. And Mozambique began to make money from its gas. But all of that money was flowing to the south, rather than being pumped back into the region the gas was actually being piped from. The militants who had already been fighting for years were frustrated that the south was getting rich whilst their gas disappeared. So the rebels in Cabo Delgado in March 2021 stormed the Total infrastructure and carried out attacks on the Total facility as well as capturing important roads and rail infrastructure. In response, the French packed up and left the country immediately and shut down their operations. With this major funding ticket gone from Maputo, how are they responding? And are they trying to lure the French back or run these gas fields themselves? As soon as Palma district headquarters has been attacked in March 2021, but as soon as Palma district headquarters has been uh, attacked, leading total to halt the project, the government quickly uh, moved to accept the Rwandese intervention, actually went to call for a Rwandan intervention in Cabo Delgado, uh, which uh, went exactly to Palma and Mosimba the prior two districts of, under influence of LNG. Uh, so that was a very clear response for from government to protect the LNG infrastructure. And uh, recently, a uh, president of Mozambique, President News, just came out to say uh, in Maputo Gulf Summit, which took place uh, a couple of weeks ago here in Maputo, he just came to say, look, the security in Palma and Musimata uh, has been restored. So it's time to the uh, international gas company to uh, come back to resume the activity. So uh, now it's very important to say that uh, we have uh, two different capital gardens. The capital gardens uh, under LNG affluence, where we have a Rwandese force with the uh, very well trained and equipped uh, contingent uh, from Rwanda with more than 2,000 uh, people, a Rwandese force on the ground protecting only two districts, and we have the rest of the province of Cabo Delgado uh, with uh, uh, not highly prepared force from uh, Samim and uh, from Mozambican state itself. So Mozambique, while it's uh, facing uh, still uh, resistance and from the insurgent groups, uh, in Palma and Mesimba, the prior situation has been uh, much improved uh, thanks to the presence of uh, Rwandese force, which have been uh, uh, deployed specifically to this mission to protect the LNG uh, investments. So the fighters in Kabul Delgado call themselves Al-Shabaab, but they're not related to the Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And they've also affiliated themselves with ISIS, but when they carry out attacks, ISIS is days late to take credit and most of the time gets details about the attack wrong, which would indicate to most of the intelligence community that they're finding out about the attack at the same time we are. So these groups fighting in Kabul Delgado that are called Al-Shabaab but associated with ISIS, are they just locals fighting under banners, or are they true arms of an international group like Al-Shabaab or ISIS? The majority of the fighters are local. Uh, so they are, as one of the reports from BBC said, they are the sons of Musimwa. Uh, Musimbo the prior is the place where uh, the attack started. So they are uh, local people. They got local support. Uh, secondly, uh, we saw in Musimba 
the Praia and the Palma that when uh, the militants went to attack the towns, they managed to infiltrate themselves first before the attacks to hide uh, in local houses. When the attack started from outside, we had, we had those who were inside the, the towns uh, starting attacks from inside the town. So it means they have got support. Uh, I won't say support of all the community, but at least significant support from local people. Uh, we saw in June 2020 when uh, militants attacked Musimbo de Praia and occupied Musimbo de Praia for almost a week. When they left, uh, video were recorded by smartphone uh, showing local people like uh, sharing when they were leaving, like, oh, goodbye. We hope to see you again here when you come back soon. So uh, it's, it means uh, local people were supporting the, 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 the insurgents. That's why we don't understand uh, how those insurgents were so you know, radical, uh, killing and beheading local people. It seems like they, those were very selective uh, beheadings, not to everyone. Uh, so they really uh, use it to enjoy from local support. Actually, even now, uh, in the IDP centers, people have been displaced are now living in the new district. We can say that those people are still having some uh, contact somehow with militants who are in the forest conducting attacks and uh, giving them inf information. Uh, so, for example, the intelligence uh, of uh, the militants, they have much uh, from local communities, give them information on how, what the militants are doing, uh, where are they, where they are, uh, where, how they live, uh, so they effectively enjoy local support, enjoy local support. So Maputo has been fighting these groups for five years, hiring everyone from the Russian Wagner Group to the South African PMCs, hoping to crush the resistance once and for all. But now they have Rwandan soldiers coming in, but are we seeing these same aggressive pushes that Maputo was hoping for from the Russians or the South Africans? Is the government of Maputo hoping to capture the entire province or just hold on to the gas-rich infrastructure? We need to try something that has never been done uh, elsewhere, but most of we can try to do that, uh, which is to negotiate with the insurgents group. It's really important to talk to them and listen to them and know what they want. Uh, it's also very important to solve the root causes of the conflict. Uh, radicalization is there, so it's very important to start the radicalization campaign uh, to the local people. And what does it mean? It means solving the root cause of the problem for economic exclusion. So we need to support local people. We need to train local people uh, with skills, giving them skills so that they can work in, in, in these LNG companies, in LNG projects and other mineral resources. Uh, we need to expand education because uh, Capital Guard is leading in terms of uh, illiteracy in Mozambique. So we need to educate local people so that they can understand what is good and what is bad. Uh, we need to educate local people so that they can have opportunity uh, to uh, search and get uh, a job which is important for them, not only working for cleaning and and as a, a guard guards in, in LNG companies. Uh, we also uh, need to uh, improve the dialogue, not only with insurgents, but also with the religious organization in Capital Gado, which are listened and respected. So government needs to talk to them, but also to respect the so-called traditional authorities in the Capital Gado, the chiefs, which are very important, and they communicate with people. So there is a lot of uh, of things to do 
in Capital Guards are part of a, a military operation, which are important, military operations are important to reduce the power to contain the attacks, but they need to be combined with other activities, with other actions which are not taking place at this point, at least in a very significant way. In an effort to lure foreign companies back to Mozambique, the government has declared victory in Cabo Delgado. But our sources on the ground tell us that that's pretty far from the truth. Do you think this conflict is coming to an end, or do you see it going a different way in the future? Uh, where we are, the conflict is escalating again. Uh, so we are seeing escalation of the conflict uh, with the new attacks. And so now the militants, after a year of arrival of foreign troops, it looks like they did adapt to the presence of uh, foreign uh, troops. So now they know how to conduct attacks, even targeting the foreign troops. I've just read a statement from uh, SADC mission uh, to Mozambique uh, about uh, uh, Lesotho soldier. Part of the mission has been uh, killed and another seven who have been injured. So it means they are again confident uh, so unfortunately, uh, if we keep, if Mozambique continues the same pro- approach as they are doing now, uh, I see that the attacks will continue and even spread to more uh, districts in the capital Delgado and even in Nampula or Zambezia. So unless Mozambique changes the approach, then uh, the attacks will continue. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. So half measures haven't worked, and the government of Maputo is stuck with a decision to either fight the war in Cabo Delgado in such a brutal fashion that it may finally break the enemy, but it also might risk simply stirring up the beehive and simply adding another name to the list of people who have fled the region in disgrace. Or they could back off take the cheaper option and just maintain a defensive perimeter around the LNG facilities. It does sound good. It would save money and lives. It might even be enough to lure Total back into Mozambique. But it's admitting that Maputo has no control over the area. And it gives Al-Shabaab time to regroup, repair, and refit. And with groups like Al-Shabaab, with every victory they have and they can boast about, more people will come and join the cause, coming from all across East Africa. So what should the government do? Should they kick the beehive or pretend it's not there? What will answer that? We'll turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Privatized Crisis It's been largely under control of a Marxist-Leninist faction for a very long time. It has opened up to to democracy and to a multi-party system, but as of yet, the Marxist-Leninist head of state is yet to relinquish political control, and this political system has affected the country, leading to various internal tensions. But the most significant security challenge in recent years has been the Islamic State and its uh, local affiliates. 
Irina Sukerman is a New York-based human rights lawyer and national security geopolitical analyst who has written and worked extensively with numerous organizations specializing in Islamism, the Muslim Brotherhood, counterterrorism, and security issues relating to North and East Africa. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. Actually, it has been spreading, uh, despite the fact that the South African forces, which has joined forces with Rwanda to stabilize the situation, claim that the insurgency has been faltered and has been limited. It has actually uh, been responsible for, for, for a rising number of attacks, and the most recent one targeted the Christian population. Now, the Muslim population is uh, located mostly in the north. Other parts of the country, the Muslim population is just uh, approximately 18%. Uh, but the fact that now Christian communities are beca- becoming a more specific target actually shows that, uh, that the insurgency is spreading and it's expanding its reach rather than focusing on just very general attacks on economic targets and general civilian population as, pre- in, as in the previous attacks as we have seen. It's now targeting more specific religious targets. It, it may be a long-term shift. It's not clear whether it is because this is, uh, this is the first attack that is that specific in recent times, but it could be pointing to a shift in strategy or the expansion of its tar- range of targets. Mozambique over the last few years has become a hub for PMCs or private military contractors. We've seen Russian PMCs, South African PMCs, international PMCs, all operating within Mozambique. Why has Mozambique become such a hub for PMC operations? Americans who are leading South African PMC groups are claiming that this is the only way to go uh, and that there's been success in other African countries such as Angola in because uh, these PMCs are highly disciplined, they're well trained, uh, they have a sense of mission, they're under the control of Western specialists who understand the uh, the environment and understand how to fight these uh, tactical asymmetrical wars and in the past they have been successful and they name Angola and other areas as prime examples of PMC succeeding. They're claiming that the efforts by the by the South African backed for, formal forces, military forces in uh, Mozambique specifically have been failing and that the um, information uh, that is reaching the European Union and the US about the successes in the counter-terrorism from the formal military uh, units are largely propaganda and in fact things are actually going from bad to worse. They believe that PMCs are much more likely to reach success despite limited funding because they can put together scrappy operations, they understand how to disrupt asymmetrical um, guerrilla type uh, groups, they're faster moving, uh, relying more on private mercenary type of groups, is less bureaucratic, more effective, and they're better at targeting and disrupting uh, these terrorist group forces. To be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure whether this assessment is fully accurate uh, because the entire strategy seems to be entirely focused on counter-terrorism and destroying these terrorist networks. But the terrorist networks, they're not something that is just uh, something that's localized and that can be easily eliminated. Uh, They have been swarming into the country from other areas. They have been continuously recruiting adherents. They have been aligning with other local forces. 
um, they they form alliances. They're not. They're very fluid. They're constantly evolving. They're not. They're not stagnant, and they they shift their forces as they need, and they move around, and they tend to grow. And in, in, in throughout Africa, Islamic State and its affiliates have actually been growing and proliferating. So without tackling these underlying issues through counterterrorism operations alone, I don't think a permanent solution can be reached, whether through PMCs or uh, government-trained forces, however effective. We've spoken about the Russian PMC group Wagner a couple of times on this program, but when you chat to guys who actually work at Wagner, Mozambique's a bit of a touchy subject. As successful as Wagner has been in Libya and the Central African Republic, in Mozambique, they got their asses kicked. In fact, having to famously tow their APCs through the town centers in a quick and muddled retreat. So why did Wagner do so badly in Mozambique? What was different to the other fights? So the key couple of factors. First, uh, Wagner was not was underprepared for this particular operation. They were not expecting the level of resistance that they did. And in other countries where they've proved to be uh, more successful, we, and we've seen that with Mali, we've seen that with uh, Sierra, we've seen that with Congo, we they have been first closely aligned with government forces, very closely integrated in providing support function to the local regimes. And second, they have had a, a broader overall reach and impact. Uh, reports have been coming out of some of the countries of uh, Wagner abuses and control of natural resources, such as gold mines. That speaks to a quasi-government function that these um, Wagner groups have been exercising there. In Libya, for instance, they've been quite well established. They're not necessarily wanted, but they're quite stable there, and they represent a significant and literally only security alternative for the local forces uh, that is not the case in Mozambique. It must enter it as, a, as an operation rather than as a permanent established negotiated presence and they were thrown out just as quickly. So where does Tanzania fit into all of this? With Cabo Delgado just over the border with Tanzania and Cabo Delgado backing onto a Muslim majority province of Tanzania, even though in Tanzania Christians make up the majority of the population. And Dodomo have been fighting similar insurgencies in their country. What is Tanzania's position on this insurgency in Cabo Delgado? Uh, Mozambique and Tanzania recently signed a counter-terrorism cooperation agreement, which essentially brings Tanzanian forces on board with stabilizing the country. But neither country has been altogether su uh, successful independent of each other. Uh, what this relationship will bring is a greater number of forces in uh, Tanzania is slightly less in the news due to these sorts of attacks, so it's a bit more, it's perceived as a bit more stable at the moment. However, the attacks definitely are cross-border, they're transnational, uh, many of them are based in local factions and tribes, which to some extent don't even recognize formal borders. We have seen the same pattern in the Sahel, we have seen these cross-border internal disputes and terrorist insurgencies often in combination with one another spill from one country to the next quite easily and despite cooperation among several countries they have not been able to fully contain these very asymmetrical, very fluid movements. Unfortunately, all evidence points to the in the East, Mozambique is only one of the countries that has been affected by this combination of local political strife, Islamist, jihadist, violent groups, and inter-ethnic, inter-religious, or other 
sectarian uh, conflicts, the combination of them. We've seen that also uh, in Uganda, we've seen it elsewhere. And now this area seems to be imploding with the proliferation of this combined cross-denominational, uh, cross-conflict, cross-ideological combinations of tensions, conflicts, and insurgencies. And with, uh, given the fact that some of the groups coming from the west, from the Sahel area, are not completely isolated from the eastern groups, the tendency is actually for them to potentially combine forces in the near future. So we're now seeing armed forces from Rwanda and South Africa entering Mozambique to support Maputo and the government's conflict against the insurgency in Capo Delgado. But what do you think their endgame is here? Are they more likely to try and take the fight right into Cabo Delgado and fight these guys in their own territory? Or will they simply stick to the coastal regions and make their aim to simply secure the area so LNG production can restart? Uh, unfortunately, the EU seems to be relying a great deal on their South African partners in that endeavor. And the South African partners have not been honest in the assessment of the successes of the training. The EU strategy has been to try to strengthen local forces. They don't want to end up in another failure as what France and its partners have suffered in the Sahel. They've had to uh, withdraw from Mali completely and Russians ended up and, uh, and uh, facing off with the terrorists. The same could well be, well be happening in uh, Mozambique, not in terms of the Russians not necessarily, but in terms of Europeans propping up the local governments without solving um, the ongoing situation on the ground that has, allow, that has allowed these conditions to proliferate. So far, we are seeing a back and forth between government forces and um, these insurgent terrorist uh, groups, the Islamic State and its affiliates. We have not seen a strategy to prevent this from happening, to stabilize the, to, to stabilize the borders, to create some sort of a greater security strategy. It seems to be a very tactical, very operational response to a far greater ideological problem stemming from a number of conditions. Um, conditions that are ongoing, including proliferation of imams from other countries that have entered uh, Mozambique and spread radicalization among the mostly Sufi and mostly peaceful uh, Muslim population, the tensions, the political tensions that continue to plague uh, the country. Um, I spoke to the Marxist-Leninist government, some of the militias and opposition factions it has incorporated into its for uh, forces have not been fully taken in. Some of them continue to engage in violent political incidents across the country. There is also the issue of uh, access to natural resources. As concerned as the European Union is about uh, moving forward with the $20 billion total energy pro project, as well as Italia's, Italian any uh, pro uh, energy project as a response to the energy crisis. We don't really see a strategy to completely secure that area. In terms of providing sheer numbers that are necessary, they don't seem to uh, have been able operationally to respond to the guerrilla and terrorist attacks, asymmetrical warfare, despite that being a specialty. The, um, the, the, the training the, and relying more on government forces has not worked either due to corruption and due to even with all the training, most of the forces are kind of on the older side. Their former government forces, that ha even in the coalition forces, their former radicals who have 
uh, returned, uh, who have then been kind of mainstreamed and who've become now the former military force. The equipment is uh, is also outdated. So without that, fighting, uh, securing decisive victories is difficult. There is uh, internal disputes. There's a high level of corruption present on, uh, in the entire area. And there is a lack of incentive among some of the uh, groups present to put the conflict to an end because they're profiting and benefiting financially from being there, from being involved. And not to mention the, uh, that's one of the reasons U.S. has been skeptical of mercenaries, because to some extent um, the U.S. government feels the mercenaries tend to prolong conflicts. But they are not necessarily functioning as a full military in the same sense as a um, U.S., European, and other Western countries or, or, or stable countries do. They're more like a gathering of militias united for uh, by some incentive, which means that they have their own internal agendas and they tend to um, not always go along with the formal plan. So we are seeing that the U- European Union has not gotten past developing an effective strategy a, a concrete objective or an effective strategy. It's operating on a tactical level uh, in very short-term goals, and that will only lead to failure even in terms of its short-term goals, in terms of securing these energy sources, because without stopping the flow of these insurgents, that area where most of these sources are located cannot be fully secured. Over the next few years, do you see the international community getting more or less involved in Mozambique? The international community has been contributing significant amount of money in humanitarian aid as well as in military support, but it has not gone anywhere because, again, the focus has been either to distribute humanitarian aid and how are you going to do that when you have uh, corrupt organizations and uh, insurgencies everywhere, so most of it is going to be stolen or misappropriated. the military issue I've already discussed, but it's the similar problem. If you rely exclusively on counterterrorism as your strategy, that's not a strategy. That is that's a tactical response to conditions. It's it's a way to ease your other functions, but it's not a substitute for coherent strategy. None of these Western countries have ever tried a more strategic or encompassing approach. The problem is the international community is facing a major energy crisis. It's facing China and Russia proliferating uh, and building networks throughout Africa. You're seeing Iran coming back to uh, to Africa as well. And you're seeing cooperation between state and non-state actors, including potentially uh, some of these local insurgencies. State actors could simply come in and uh, look to increase influence and with uh, influence access to energy and to local control and to future recruitment of proxies by virtue of this mess. So just because the West doesn't want to, does not wish to put in the significant amount of resources it needs to create a stable condition doesn't mean other actors will not. At the end of the day, ideology and geopolitics will always play a significantly greater security role than simple uh, terrorism tactics. 
And that is this this bigger picture is something is what U.S. and others should be focused on. It should be for, uh, focused on developing comprehensive solutions, which at the end of the day might not be more costly than just dumping money into the black hole of endless counterterrorism operations. That I don't think is not a really workable approach. But neither is abandoning the situation because it will not resolve itself. It will only get worse, and there will be other players who will come in and exploit it for their own reasons. So Russia and the South African PMCs have walked away with their egos bruised, and these ragtag fighters in Kabul Delgado have added yet another invader to their list of people who they've chewed up and spat out. But who's up next? Well, it seems to be the EU, Rwanda, and South Africa again. But are they changing tactics this time? Have they been more successful than the previous runs? And why is Mozambique becoming such a focal point for this many powers? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 3. Repairing the Rupture Mozambique for a while was considered a bright spot in Africa for its economic potential and resolution of a decades-long civil war. It was a place people talked about visiting as tourists. Um, people would extol like these huge prawns they could eat for dinner and how friendly the vibe was. And you even, even up north, which is not an area of the country that people often talk about. You saw resorts popping up on some of those coastal islands, and there was a lot of excitement over the country's potential. Uh, a return to conflict with Renamo put a damper on that, um, and just as that conflict seemed to be coming to a close, uh, we saw this new conflict pop up in the north, an area that, again, people hadn't looked at too closely before. So overall, uh, a, really, a place people were really excited about um, probably still are in some ways, but that has had a few setbacks. Amelia Colombo is a senior associate at the CSIS Africa program and a senior security risk analyst at Voxcroft Analytics. Prior to this, she also served as a senior analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, covering African and Latin American political security issues. And we're thrilled to have her on the program today. Mozambique doesn't come up in conversation a lot. There are a lot of these details and nuances that are even less at the surface. So even though they are, it is one country of Mozambique, even though the fight for independence from Portugal originated in the north, the north and the south are two completely different places. So much so that when the army and the police are deployed north, there are so many Southerners within their ranks that Northerners view them as foreign actors. Historically, the Northern region of Mozambique, Cabo Delgado province uh, in particular, they are historically linked to the Swahili-speaking communities of East Africa. Centuries ago, the clans that dominated along the coast in particular were very much tied into the broader Indian Ocean economy. In a country that is widely known as being a Christian country with a Muslim minority, when you move north, that dynamic changes and the, you see a much greater presence, a greater majority of Muslim communities up in the north relative to the south. So the south is typically wealthier, more developed in a country where uh, sort of education, economic opportunities are rather limited. At least you have more of those in the south relative to the north. And again, there's this sense that the North is very disconnected. In fact, Gabu Delgado, which means thin cape, 
uh, in Portuguese, has the nickname of Cabo Desligado, or unconnected cape, or disconnected cape, since there is this the great gap between the north and the south. You've studied and worked with a lot of these regions' governments over the years, and there are so many different angles to this story. But Tanzania in particular raises a lot of questions for me. Some people tell me that they'd like to see Cabo Delgado become more of a problem inside Mozambique, as they don't want to keep seeing African investment money heading south into Mozambique instead of Tanzania. And on the other hand, I hear people tell me that Dodoma, the capital of Tanzania, is really worried about this insurgency forming similar footholds on their side of the border. Where do you think Tanzania sits within this dynamic? Um, that dynamic has kind of evolved over time. Tanzania is not supportive of the insurgents to date. Uh, in fact, they, the fighting in Mozambique, to the extent it spills over into Tanzania, is also disruptive to local economies, a threat to stability. Uh, you know, the sort of radicalization is not something that would be convenient for Tanzania either. Tanzania has its own, just as uh, Mozambique has some gas exploration taking place off its coast, Tanzania has that potential too. So again, no need for this type of activity to disrupt that economic development project. But at the same time, cooperation has been a bit limited and uneven, despite the shared interest in stabilizing that border area. I think more recently, we've seen at least greater conversations between Mozambican and Tanzanian military authorities and even political authorities on the need for greater counterterrorism cooperation. Just a month ago, they signed another counterterrorism agreement that does include provisions for intelligence sharing and training. It's a bit unclear exactly how that'll be implemented and what the timeline for implementing these provisions will be, but it's it certainly a step forward. There have been moments where uh, we see like each Tanzania and Mozambique uh, acting a bit independently. And I think greater collaboration in these areas of intelligence sharing, especially to support each other's military operations along the border, would certainly be useful. So how does the relationship between Mozambique and Tanzania compare to that, say, Mozambique and South Africa, who in recent times has become a little bit frostier? That is a very interesting relationship in the context of this conflict and one that was really something to watch, especially back in like 2020, 2021. I mean, South Africa as the regional heavyweight and in, in the Southern African development community was really on Mozambique's case to do something about this conflict before it created greater regional instability. From what I understand, though, a lot of this pressure was applied through SADC, which stands for the South American Development Community an intergovernmental organization focusing on the African nations from around the Democratic Republic of Congo down, with this organization focusing heavily on intergovernmental economic cooperation. Obviously, the heavyweight of this organization is South Africa, who regularly tables the discussion and nudges conversation. Do you think South Africa were using their place in SADC to try and convince Mozambique toward accepting more international peacekeepers to try and end this war just over their border? There was a lot of pressure coming from South Africa through the context of SADC to allow foreign troops to come in, to allow these neighboring countries to help uh, in a security situation that was steadily worsening. And Maputo was extremely resistant to this pressure. It was almost a counterproductive approach. Um, Mozambique is very... of. It's right to determine the course of this conflict and to determine 
how and when foreign actors would lend support. And so what we often saw in these SADC summits about insecurity in Cabo Delgado was pressure from South Africa, primarily, to allow foreign troops in, to allow neighbors to help counter this threat before it got worse. And Maputo's response of thank you, but no, we would appreciate instead greater training and equipment and other sort of things like this that would allow them to um, better control and have a stronger say in how this conflict was managed. And it created quite a bit of tension between the two sides. I think the South African officials during this time period were pretty uh, forthright in their public statements about their disappointment in how Maputo was handling the conflict and managing the role of the international community in it. A big turning point in this conflict was the attack on Palma in March of 2021. Uh, this was a town that had been widely considered as fairly secure in an area of great conflict, a town that was very important to the natural gas development, a town that was home to a lot of foreign uh, nationals who were working on these different on these projects and related um, sort of support industries, including South African nationals. And when the insurgents attacked Palma, that really elevated this conflict globally because you had, it was such a spectacular attack that few necessarily saw coming and that directly for the first time impacted foreign nationals, including South Africans. And at that point, Mozambique kind of had to back down and start allowing for greater help, but again, on their own terms. And so we saw, again, despite over a year of pressure and back and forth on when and how to allow South uh, SADC troops into the country, we saw Maputo cancel a meeting with SADC, have a meeting in Kigali, and the next thing you know, you have Rwandan troops deployed to the region, followed shortly thereafter by SADC troops as well. So um, that relationship has been, had a lot of twists and turns, a lot of tension between two sides who have a very clear vision of how they think things should be done. And ultimately, um, Mozambique, in a way, won the day. They ultimately did set the terms for how and when their neighbors would participate in this conflict. So I'm going to pose a bit of a perspective question here, but why do you think Maputo would be pushing back so hard against SADC troops coming in to help? Surely having other countries pay and fight and die to solve your conflict seems like a bit of an easy call. So why would Maputo pass this option up? Uh, I think there are a few factors to consider. Uh, I think certainly national pride played a role. I think, too, we need to consider how this conflict is even being defined. I think there is still some space between how the government defines the origins of the conflict and perhaps other observers of the conflict define it. You'll often hear government officials refer to this conflict as something that's being fomented externally, fomented by unnamed actors who seek to undermine Mozambique's economic development, who seek to undermine the natural gas project that's underway there. Um, and if that's the, how you define the problem, then you'll probably define the solution as the government has done by focusing on sort of the military and police response. Um, others would argue that it's, this conflict has its origins very much domestically based on domestic grievances that have been brewing for decades, if not centuries, and that finally came to a head in 2017. 
but then that also requires acknowledging the different sources of conflict, um, which maybe the government isn't quite ready to do. Some will have a more cynical view of why the government is so resistant to foreign intervention and argue that there's so much corruption and illicit activity that the elites are involved in up there that bringing in foreign eyes to sort of potentially expose this uh, is another reason why they would be reluctant to allow other actors to come in. The moment when this story pivoted from being something that people like us would be watching to where the entire world began to really pay attention to Mozambique seems to be at the point where Total's infrastructure falls under attack in 2021, with Total then seizing its LPG operations. Was it just Total who left in this particular moment, or did this send ripples through the entire international business community extracting in Mozambique? I mean, Total grabbed all the headlines because its investment is the is so significant there and it already, and so much of its work was also onshore. And so they were a bigger target. So I think they grabbed a lot of headlines. I do think that this incident caused other investors in the LNG project to rethink their approach. And increasingly you see stories about different actors considering moving more offshore instead of working on and offshore. Um, More talk of having floating platforms and a different approach to extracting and developing this gas project. If these companies are now just talking about moving offshore, is that the end of their incentive to actually do something to stabilize the situation within Cabo Delgado? That these companies will simply demand the airports, the foreign hotels, and the seaports remain open, and that their staff are safe, but anything else in the region would no longer matter to them, as it would be much harder for these rebel groups to attack the offshore rigs than it would be for the onshore rigs. Does this trend of companies beginning to go offshore bear a bad sign for the international community's interest into finding a permanent solution here in the north of Mozambique? Yes, this is sort of a hot debate uh, in terms of people watching the conflict is to what degree are we at risk of what some call the Iraqification of Cabo Delgado, where the government focuses so much on getting these projects back on track to include onshore and not just offshore, that they focus so much on providing security in the areas most relevant to this gas development project that they neglect the rest of the province. And and I think when you look at developments this year in particular, you kind of see where this argument is coming from and how there is a risk of it coming to very much a reality. Uh, When you listen to government officials speak about the current state of affairs, you, they focus a lot on the achievements that have that they, along with their foreign partners, have made uh, since July, August of 2021. The fact that the insurgents no longer control Mosimboa da Praia, which is a key port town, not just in terms of commerce for the province, but even providing um, supplies to Mozambican troops in the area. So regaining that port town was very important, Uh, clearing the insurgents out of Palma, which we've already discussed its significance. Also an important development, the government will talk about infrastructure that's been rebuilt in the past year or so, the return of electricity to some areas that hadn't seen electricity provision since the insurgents had taken over parts of the northern part of the province. Um, There's even talk of displaced people returning home. And if you only listen to these comments, one comes away with the impression that things are on the mend, like 
we're getting to a better place. Like, yeah, maybe you should restart these LNG projects. It sounds great. But if you take a step back away from these official comments, if you look at what humanitarian organizations are reporting, if you look at other sources of information, the conflict is far from over. And there are still so many attacks taking place around the province. And we've seen this year the insurgents moving farther south into areas of the province that had not experienced conflict previously. We are still seeing waves of displacements um, of people who were probably displaced once or twice before and had come to these southern parts in the expectation of greater security and seeing that security taken away. We still see reports of civilians being beheaded, um, towns burnt down, civilians being kidnapped. So while these there are pockets of improvement, the conflict is far from over. And when the government comes out and says things are better, I can't help but wonder what that sounds like to someone who has just been displaced for the third time or for the first time. And to what extent that not only reinforces this argument for, or this perception that the government is only securing those areas most important to its economic interests, but to what extent does this development reinforce the message the insurgents are sharing with the public when they go out and say, we're here to defend you from a government that is corrupt, a government that only cares about lining its own pockets, even at your personal expense. And now you've just been displaced, sure, by the same people who are telling you that they're there to help you. But when you look at their argument, I can't help but wonder how many civilians feel like maybe the insurgents have a point. And not necessarily that they'll then go and join the insurgency or lend um, proactive aid to it, but I, I wonder to what extent, what image, what message this sends to the broader civilian population when the government is saying that security has improved on the same day there have been multiple attacks in towns outside the area of, uh, outside these coastal areas, the areas that the government is specifically referring to. And it's not just EU companies anymore sniffing around Mozambique. China has begun to take a real interest in the country. Although I would be interested to see how far you think they're willing to wade into Mozambique, particularly after having Zambia, the poster child for where the BRI goes wrong and cost Beijing billions for no return right over the border. What do you think will be China's end goal here in Mozambique and how will it compare to their investments in Zambia to the west or Tanzania in the north? It's an interesting dynamic. China is accused of a lot of, of participating in a lot of the illicit activities up north that kind of contribute to instability, um, you know, the illegal logging activities, mining and whatnot. Uh, it's a constant source of tension. At the same time, Mozambique does benefit from Belt and Road initiatives and from that sort of broader strategy. So the government kind of has to, it's a balancing act, as I imagine it is for many other countries where in some ways the country does benefit from these infrastructure investments, but at what cost? And that's something that I think is getting a little bit more attention in Mozambique, at least from outside observers and researchers, the extent to which there is this cost in receiving the, the, the sort of infrastructure investment and benefits. To this point, we also haven't talked very much about the U.S. interests in Mozambique. So how does Washington view Mozambique? I think there are two things at play. I think one, maybe the U.S. relationship with Mozambique has been a bit under the radar. I mean, the fact is you, the U.S. is Mozambique's largest humanitarian aid donor. 
I think this conflict in the North changed that dynamic. And while before it was sort of this low-key humanitarian aid and development partnership, now we're seeing greater commercial and business interests. The U.S. International Development Finance Corporation in 2020 approved investments of roughly $1.8 billion in these LNG projects. Export-Import Bank in 2021 approved a $4.7 billion loan to companies, U.S. companies investing in these projects. So definitely our financial, the U.S. financial interests interests are increasing, you know, like ExxonMobil is already involved in the LNG projects. And there's this expectation that as these projects get underway, you may see an even greater U.S. business investment footprint in the area. And now you have the conflict in the North as well. And this group has affiliated itself publicly with the Islamic State, which again, shoots it right up on the priority list for U.S. security concerns. And we saw last year the U.S. State Department added this group to its list of foreign terror organizations, giving it the moniker Islamic State Mozambique. In so doing, they opened the door to greater U.S. legal action against the group and anyone deemed to be supporting the group according to U.S. law. And it also opens the door to greater law enforcement cooperation with other partners looking to combat this group. So why did what seemed to be a fairly local movement in Cabo Delgado throw themselves in with ISIS? From what the open source intelligence seems to suggest, ISIS knows very little about the day-to-day operations of what's going on in the north of Mozambique. And by this group joining ISIS, they're just asking to bring the US down upon them. So what are they getting in return for bringing this heat upon them? Is it training? Is it coordination? Is it money? You know, what's in it for the fighters of Cabo Delgado to wave an ISIS flag? The relationship that we see between Islamic State Central and this Mozambican group is pretty representative of how the different African affiliates work with ISIS Central, where typically once this relationship is established, it tends to focus on propaganda. And in large part, that that's the primary sort of function of the relationship, propaganda and learning. So we'll often see in affiliates around the continent a change in propaganda, a change in messaging. You see, as you noted, the Islamic State putting out more reports about activities taking place in these different countries. To the extent that the local partner also produces propaganda, you may see an improvement in the quality of its propaganda, the quality of its videos and content. Um, You may also see improvements in its or changes in its strategy and approach to the conflict as it learns from Islamic State Central. Rarely do you see things like weapons transfers or financing. It really does tend to be on more of this like soft side distance learning and propaganda. In this particular case, it's an interesting dynamic because the local affiliate is not big into propaganda. They do not put themselves out there that much. Even their name is a bit up for debate. What different people call them different things. They haven't, they'll locally communicate to civilians in like when they enter villages and through their indoctrination programs, things about an intent to create a caliphate and Mosimbo the Brai was supposed to have been the capital reportedly. They'll communicate messages about their intent to provide locals with a better government, that the central government is corrupt, that even religious leaders are in cahoots with the central government. They're corrupt too. We practice the right form of Islam will provide you with stability, will provide you with um, all the things that you're lacking 
today. But that's all very low key. That's all in local languages to the extent that videos do come out from them or it's in Portuguese. Very local, local group with local messages. So when the Islamic State comes out with its things and it comes out with things in Arabic in particular, that's for a different audience. That That's their own thing that they're working on to, to make themselves look like they have a broader reach. It's not necessarily reflective always of what's on the ground and it's certainly not indicative of them directing the local group in its strategy. The local group's approach is very much centered on its own goals, on its own survival, and not necessarily to amplify or to contribute to the Islamic State Central's personal global goals. Leading this new peacekeeping mission into the north of Mozambique is Rwanda. Not usually a country seen as a military powerhouse, but Rwanda has stepped up and put peacekeepers on the ground and is actively leading a lot of these operations. Rwanda has been working very hard to pitch themselves as the new Singapore of Africa, offering a safe spot to base your banks, NGOs, IGOs, and local logistics hubs. See, usually that role would be played by Ethiopia, who was until recently always the first ones to put their hands up for African peacekeeping missions. But with the civil war tearing Ethiopia apart at the moment, most of their peacekeepers have returned home to fight for one side or the other, leaving a huge vacuum of peacekeepers throughout the African continent. Do you think this move by Rwanda to put its troops forward for these missions is another way of them advertising themselves to the world as the next organizational heart of Africa, that they seek to play the role that Ethiopia played until very recently? And if that is their goal, how have the Rwandan troops working on the ground here fared so far? If that is their intent, then I think their work in Mozambique will be a nice addition to the CV. By all accounts thus far, the Rwandan forces have been effective. Uh, There is still insurgent activity in the areas where the Rwandans are present, but certainly they have been successful in reducing that activity. Early reports indicated that the insurgents were a bit taken aback by the Rwandan presence and certainly tried to avoid confrontations with them. Thus far, anecdotal reporting about Rwandan interactions with civ- with civilians have been quite positive, and you even hear stories about Rwandan troops serving as a mediator between civilians and Mozambican authorities. Reports of Rwandans telling their Mozambican counterparts to cool it in the way that they are aggressive towards civilians, which is an interesting dynamic. You know, to your earlier question about the this, the difference between the North and the South, here's a good example of, uh, of that, where reportedly the Rwandans have an easier communication with civilians because they speak Swahili, and that allows them to communicate more effectively with locals than the Portuguese-speaking Southerners. I would add, too, that the Rwandans have been good at their broader communication strategy and early in the conflict would provide weekly updates on how things were going, what they had achieved, what they had encountered. They would put out videos of them making meals with local moms, hanging out with civilians uh, in a very like positive way. So I-, I don't know if Rwanda's ambitions are to fully replace Ethiopia, but to the extent that they need to sell themselves as an effective foreign intervening force, the Mozambique case thus far will be a very effective argument for that. So do the fighters in Cabo Delgado actually have a set of demands or an end goal for Maputo, something that they could reach that would possibly bring both sides to the negotiation table to sort out a ceasefire? 
because this group has been so low key in terms of its messaging, you know, the government will argue, well, I, I don't know who these people are or what they want. And they're not necessarily wrong. Like some other organizations like put out manifestos and lists of demands, and they haven't been quite so detailed and structured in their demands. So when you talk about negotiating with them, now, what are you negotiating? What is it that they want? I think if you look at more broadly at the civilian population, it's the reasons why people would join the insurgency and why the insurgency exists. I think the government approach needs to include development. It needs to include greater political openness. We're looking at youth who feel economically, politically, and religiously marginalized. Some of the earliest research into the origins of this group points to a religious sect that had developed in another part of Cabo Delgado among youth who had a more radical view of Islam and who were kicked out of their mosques. And so they formed their own little sect. And eventually that sect got disrupted as well. And these fellows resurfaced in Mosimbo da Praia and tried again. And at that point, religious authorities really came down on the political, on the civilian authorities to do something about it. And that's when you started to see greater like police invading these mosques, arresting these youth. And then on October 5th, 2017, you saw the first attacks against police stations in Los Simbo da Praia to free these fellows who had been arrested. And things just sort of have been devolving steadily since then. That's sort of the religious marginalization. And part of their message is that the religious leaders are corrupt and that they benefit from sort of elite schemes just as much as the political elites do and can't be trusted. So there's some rebuilding, I think, to do even there in society. More broadly, you have economic marginalization that had been bubbling for years, but that the gas development probably brought to the fore. Cabo Delgado, we always talk about the gas development, but you know, they also are very rich in timber. They're rich in rubies, graphite, other sort of resources like this where you have a lot of artisanal, had a lot of artisanal mining. But as the government tried to gain greater control over these mining industries, they were often a little rough in how they removed the artisanal mining or the independent miners, uh, which again fed into this grievance, this perception of a corrupt state that doesn't care about the people and denies them their income for their own benefit. Then you have the LNG production, which forced some communities to move away from the coast, forced some communities to halt fishing along the coast. Some families were moved farther inland where they didn't have easy access to the sea, easy access to their ancestral lands where they had to start over, but didn't feel they had the resources they needed to start over. You had youth who had expected that with these all these foreign investments, they would benefit economically. Finally, they would have the resources they needed to start a life of their own and a family of their own. But instead, the perception that these jobs, the best jobs went to foreigners. And I would add that foreigners includes other Mozambicans who came from the South, not just people who came from outside the borders of the country. And again, that fueled this perception of a state that was just out for itself and didn't care about the locals. And I think you need to consider too the political marginalization of this youth, the sense that they don't have a voice in politics, in their future, in the government. Uh, power shifted to the South, even within the ruling party. And while it's still back, while it's back with Newsy, it's still back with this specific sort of 
group and area of the province, the Mwani people of the coast, who had once been so powerful in that area, have seen their fortunes, their political and economic fortunes wane over time. And initially, they formed the backbone of this group. So it's not to say that this is a religious conflict, that this is a ethnic conflict. Those are minor points. Even if recently, um, an organization out of South Africa, ISS, surveyed people in Cabo Delgado, and they cite economic issues as the leading driver of the conflict, and not these other issues that sort of coincide with the economic and political marginalization. So when we talk about what it's going to take to negotiate an end to the conflict, what it's going to take to really put us on a path toward sustainable peace, I think a lot of it has to do with addressing these fundamental grievances, these historical grievances, economic grievances, better balancing the economic opportunities for youth across the province, providing youth in particular with a greater voice in um, local governance and politics and in civil society. Half of the displaced people are minors. Many of them are unaccompanied at this point and have suffered repeated traumas, both at the hands of the insurgents and of government forces in some cases and will require a lot of attention in order to um, sort of rebuild society in that way. And I think a a final point to this vision of negotiation and long-term peace is even developing a demobilization process. We've seen since foreign intervention over a year ago, we have seen more instances of of insurgent fighters wanting to leave. And we've seen the government call for them to leave and let them know like, hey, yo, come back, we're good. We'll find a way to move forward together. Um, Even recently, there have been reports of the government distributing leaflets in multiple languages, encouraging people to leave. But it's unclear what they're leaving for, what is on the other side. And I think developing a program that would encourage them so you can say, you know what, you want to leave? That sounds great. You should do that. Report to this place. This person will guide you through this process. And at the conclusion of this process, you will be integrated into society in this way. I think would be much more comforting and encouraging for people who are on the fence about sticking with this insurgency thing than just these vague encouragements to leave. So I think that that's sort of another piece that hasn't received much attention, but will be an important component in bringing the group to even a point where they might be more willing to negotiate with the government and we can start this process forward. When I began writing this piece, I often thought about what an older Mozambican has seen in their lifetime. In their lifetime, they would have experienced the jubilation of Mozambique getting its independence and the Portuguese, but also lived through the backsliding right after that into a brutal years-long civil war. They would have finally seen outside powers beginning to build schools and roads and be interested in the Mozambican economy, but then the Cold War left and the interest in building them up with it. They would have seen the discovery of this huge amount of natural gas, read the headlines of Mozambique being the next country to watch, one of the fastest growing countries in the entire world. But then they would have watched the gas revenues deepen the divides already inherent in the country, and then go on to catalyze a movement in the north, a movement whose growth would scare away the investment that would have bought you the money in the first place. Without having to have even moved house, They would have seen US, EU, Russia, South African, Ethiopian, Rwandan, and Tanzanian troops all march through their country, strutting in, chin up, thinking they would be the ones to succeed, breaking Cabo Delgado where others had failed. So you raise your hope. 
that whether they crush the rebellion or actually build up the North to allow for a peaceful solution, it at least brings some stability. But time and time again, these nations run in, become exhausted, and limp out. Five steps forward, four steps back. But if you go back to that minister at the beginning of the peace, you're faced with a pretty tough choice. What do you do? Do you fortify what you have by deploying troops to guard the LPG projects, keep your friends in the south rich, and simply bury your head in the sand about the situation in the rest of the country? It has worked so far. Or do you take the hard road, slow the development of the south, agitate most of the people in power, risk a coup or even worse, another horrifying civil war between the north and the south? All because you decided to do the right thing and start to spread projects evenly across the country and try and benefit all with the small amount of riches you have. This is the ultimate question for any leadership sitting in Maputo today, and I can't say which road they'll end up taking, but if there is any country on earth whose people can produce a comeback from the brink of disaster, it's been Mozambique. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. It's been a while since we've done a piece on Africa, and this one was a doozy. I can safely say this episode was an absolute rabbit hole of research, and the more I looked into it, the weirder it got. Speaking of other big research projects, you may have seen last week that we launched part one of our five-part miniseries, The Green Line, a series focusing on the near-term security implications of climate change, with part one looking at how the United States, or more aptly, the Department of Defense, is preparing for climate change. This miniseries has been eye-opening to put together, and so far your feedback has ranged from absolutely loving it to I love it, but good lord I need to call my mum and tell her I love her. So thank you so much for the feedback on the first episode, and we're looking forward to releasing parts 2 through 5. We'll be dropping part 2 of the series, how the Chinese military is preparing for climate change, next week, in the same feed where you found this clip. But if you want to stay ahead of the curve and keep up to date with all the other things we've got going on at the moment, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz. Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help myself and the team keep this going. And speaking of Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Ray Gerhard who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Ray, who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep this show going. And we can't thank Ray enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we greatly appreciate it. So this episode on Mozambique and its war in the North is thanks to you, Ray. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is The Looting Machine by Tom Burgess one of my all-time favorites and one I pretty much recommend every time I talk about Africa for a look at how the energy industry operates within the continent. The second is The Battle for Mozambique, The Frelimo Ranamo Struggle by Edward Emerson for a look at all of the history of Mozambique that we sadly just didn't have time to cover in this episode. And the third is Africa Since Decolonization, The History and Politics of a Diverse Continent by Martin Wells for a look at Mozambique's place within the continent. Also want to say thanks to my guests this week, Burgess Nimire, Irina Sukuman, and Amelia Colombo. All of you were absolutely fantastic on this one, and we look forward to having you back soon. I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zivello, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanu, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. 
If you've appreciated anything about the red line, it's probably been something that this team has come up with. And we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are without this amazing set of people. The red line will be back in another fortnight. And the green line will be back next week. But until then, thank you for listening. And good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.